Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Who's responsible for the opioid epidemic in America? Dozens of U.S. states and cities, including here in Connecticut, are suing the maker of painkiller OxyContin produced by Stanford-based Purdue Pharma. They accuse the pharmaceutical company of fraud and deceptive marketing to sell the painkiller while downplaying addiction risk. Coming up, we're going to hear from one of the cities in Connecticut, the city of Danbury, about its decision to sue. A new book by journalist Beth Macy investigates the opioid crisis from the time OxyContin came onto the market to how prescription drugs led to the epidemic. She charts its course through central Appalachia before it spread to suburbs and cities nationwide. The book is called Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America. Beth Macy is the author and journalist, and she's written several books. Beth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Now, Beth is joining us today from the studios of WVTF in Roanoke, Virginia. And our listeners can join our conversation, too. That number, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I understand you're a reporter for the Roanoke Times in Virginia for uh, many years. So what motivated you write this book? So I started writing about heroin. Um, I was the family's beat reporter uh, until 2014. And I I wrote a three-part series about heroin when it landed in the wealthy white suburbs around 2010. And readers sort of went, you know, choked on their coffee and said, holy crap, white kids are doing heroin. And nobody knew because nobody had paid attention when the opioid crisis was first breaking out in the rural hinterlands. And then, of course, in the suburbs where kids had the money to hide their addiction, it took a long while before it became aware in the suburbs and cities, too. So that really allowed it to fester and grow. And so you broke up your book uh, in, in three different ways by looking at three different communities. Walk us through those communities. Sure. I saw I saw these three different communities as sort of standing in for a microcosm of America. I start out with um, Central Appalachia, the westernmost county in Virginia is called Lee County, and um, that's where they really first started having problems with oxycontin abuse and overprescribing. It, almost immediately after the drug was uh, introduced in 1996. Um, and then I follow the spread to heroin in the mid-aughts and late-aughts, and then uh, through Roanoke, Virginia, where I've been a reporter for almost 30 years. And then more recently, because there's nowhere the opioid crisis isn't, I followed sort of the spread to heroin and fentanyl in a, in a, in a non-distress kind of idyllic farm community called Woodstock, Virginia, where a twice convicted drug dealer had landed and started bringing heroin in from Harlem. And we're going to hear more about this uh, conversation you had with this uh, dealer, Ronnie Jones, actually uh, in uh, prison. But when we look at the title of your book, Beth, you chose uh, to call it Dope Sick. When we hear that term, um, tell us what you mean and then why you chose it for this book. I chose it because it was it's kind of in your face and it's also the concept that 
that most Americans still don't seem to quite grasp. Early on in the book, a woman in the coal fields is talking about when she was overprescribed OxyContin and realized she was addicted and then talked a neighbor into getting her doctor to write her prescriptions that she could then uh, sell to her because the main fear is always not to be in withdrawal, which they call dope sick. And she said, at the end of your journey, you're not doing heroin or pills to get high. You're doing it so as not to be dope sick. And they all describe it almost to a person as the worst flu times 100. It is uh, diarrhea, sweats, vomiting, nausea, restless leg. Um, and person after person that I interviewed who is addicted to um, these morphine-based products, um, they are pretty much describe it almost as if their brains are hijacked by the molecule. That's interesting that, that you chose that title. And because you've been a reporter and you mentioned the series you did back in 2010, uh, you're very well of the stigma that surrounds uh, addiction uh, in this country and this idea that, well, why can't people just stop taking it? Why is like yeah. why, you know, and this idea that because the brain has been rewired because of the strength of these opioids, it's not that simple just to stop. Not that simple, and the stigma is huge. And that, as I said earlier, that is part of why this epidemic was allowed to fester and grow. When we started seeing it in our cities and suburbs, and the kids sort of had the money initially to hide their addiction, you know, they would say their iPad was stolen when really they pawned it for drugs, and their parents would get them another, et cetera, et cetera. The few parents that were in on the quote dirty little secret, you know, had the money to send their kids off to rehab, but of course that didn't necessarily make the problem go away either. Um, one of the more stunning statistics, I'm not a big numbers person, but the, the number that sort of grabbed me was John Kelly out of Harvard saying it takes the typical person who's addicted to opioids eight years and five to six uh, recovery attempts to achieve one year of remission. So this isn't something we can just turn off. Uh, Beth Macy is the author of the book Dope Sig, which we're talking about uh, for the hour here on Where We Live. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. We know many of you have been touched by opioid abuse in your family, maybe in your in your life. And we want to hear um, a little bit about uh, your reaction to how uh, our communities around this country, including the government, is responding uh, to this crisis. And you can also tweet us at Where We Live. Uh, Beth, uh, tell us about the role of prescription painkillers, Specifically, when we talk about OxyContin, which we know uh, here in Connecticut, produced by a company, Purdue Pharma, based in Stanford. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when it was introduced in 1996, um, they hired an army of sales reps to go out across the country. The reps, they bought them data showing which doctors in the country prescribed the most competing opioids. So at the time, those would have been immediate-released opioids like Vicodin, per Percocet, Lortab. And the reps were sent out to the doctors who were already prescribing a lot of those drugs, and they were given this pitch that OxyContin was better because it lasted 12 hours, which it didn't quite. And also that it was, quote, um, addiction was, quote, exquisitely rare or or um, addiction only happened in less than 1% of all cases. And they um, they trotted out bad data. The FDA allowed them to make this very squishy claim that um, because of the time release mechanism, it was believed to reduce the liability of abuse. And what happened in these rural distressed communities where the jobs were closing, the factories were going overseas, is these tended to be areas where there were instances of actual pain and workplace injuries. So that's why you see the, the epidemic sort of 
the alarm bells sounding there first, the late 90s, the early aughts. I mean, in Lee County, which I write in depth about, um, you have a rural country doctor who's being called out in the middle of the night for overdose cases of uh, kids he had immunized as babies and people overdosing in the Lee High School library and farmers and miners committing horrible crimes never more be seen in that community because they were already addicted to that drug. And I guess the important distinction to make is before when they had been injured, they had taken these immediate release opioids and had been able to take them correctly and um, get off them when the prescription was finished. But with OxyContin, it was just so much stronger. As one police officer told me, the difference was it turned them into, quote, non-functioning people. Mm. When we think about uh, opioid painkillers like OxyContin, traditionally, how were they prescribed? And then with the marketing uh, that Purdue Pharma put in place, with the incentivizing of their drug reps, how did that uh, change this? um, How did that change the doctor's perspective of when exactly to prescribe this pill? Right. For 100 years, opioids were known to be addictive. And so they were only used in cases of very severe pain, end of life, cancer pain, right? And so the pharmaceutical industry, uh, led by Purdue, but also others, sort of trumpeted this notion that pain was being undertreated. A lot of that grew out of the hospice movement in the 80s. But you saw pain as a fifth vital sign in the early 90s, managed care, all these things sort of conspired with the introduction of oxycodone cotton to create the perfect storm. And the sales reps were incentivized because the more milligrams they talked a uh, doctor into prescribing of OxyContin, the bigger the bonuses were. Uh, it's pretty infuriating reading the book when you uh, when you go through some of these bonuses, even the way uh, drug reps, uh, there was one example where uh, there was a birthday party involved. Can you talk about that, Beth? Yeah, that wasn't Purdue. I mean, these were all pharmaceutical companies, um, not just not just the opioid makers. But yeah, one um, chain smoking doctor in Withville, Virginia, put up a sign in her lobby for the uh, reps to sponsor her kid's uh, 13th birthday party to Carowinds, the amusement park. And the rep who told me that story said he had gotten to her office and they all knew she was a chain smoker. And so he sat down. He was waiting for her to come back. And there was a, a carton of cigarettes with a Celexa sticker on it. So they would find out what the doctors liked, whether it was Cuban cigars, whether it was, you know, a p- particular restaurant, and they would show up with food from that restaurant or the cigars and court the doctors. Of course, that doesn't happen anymore to the degree. I'm told the free meals are still um, a regular thing at doctor's offices, but it now all part of healthcare reform, that all has to be reported. Mm-hmm. So we have seen a positive change in that. There, there was a doctor uh, that um, you interviewed uh, that thought this was wrong early on and tried to get the other doctors in his practice uh, uh, to sign on that they're not going to accept these bon- these uh, incentives and um, these freebies, but that, that wasn't something that was uh, taken very well. Yeah, he was kind of the loner. He said he used to go into uh, the fridge and bring his cold leftovers from home and kind of slink back to his office. Um, the other doctors in his practice said, but what will the what will the staff and the nurses and the receptionists think if we take the free meals away? And it just became this groupthink. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was a newspaper reporter, we weren't allowed to take anything. If somebody sent us flowers after we did a story that perhaps they liked about us, we had to give the flowers away to a homeless shelter mm-hmm. or, or domestic violence shelter. I mean, there are ethics rules in place for journalists that doctors who make so much more money than journalists um, 
were apparently, uh, you know, not required to hew to. Mm. So because of all this effort uh, to uh, sell the drug, so to speak, to doctors who then in turn prescribed it to patients starting in these very poor areas like Lee County, uh, what kind of impact did that have in the community? And who were the first people, you mentioned this one doctor, but others that that started to sound the warning that this was uh, going to end badly? Oh, yeah. So Dr. Van, Art Van Zee from St. Charles works at a federally qualified uh, sliding scale health center. He started calling them, writing letters right away. One, one of his earliest letters said something to the effect of, you know, writing the medical director of Purdue. My fear is that these distressed rural areas are sentinel areas, just the way San Francisco and New York were in the early years of HIV. And of course, he was absolutely right. I found the police officer out there who you know, as early as 97 or 98, he wasn't sure, but one of his longtime confidential informants leans into his car and says, this feller up here, has got this new drug he's selling. It's called OxyContin. And he says, it's great. So that police officer now retired told me you could walk around these little coalfield communities back in those early days, and you could see people with green and orange smudges on their shirts. So what they did was they almost immediately figured out how to beat the time lapse, the time lapse mechanism of OxyContin, the 12-hour um, time time lapse mechanism. They would put it in their mouth, wait for the coating to melt off, and then they would rub the coating or the time lapse mechanism off on their shirts. So the pills were orange and green, the 40 and 80 milligrams. And, you know, so he was seeing that as early as the late 90s. Um, pharmacists were being broken into. Um, one uh, pharmacist, um, this is, you know, started telling his customers right away, you lock this up because people will break into your house for this. Uh, uh, grocery store manager um, from the coal fields was shot and killed because he was making a night deposit um, uh, with the grocery store earnings of the day. And somebody was so dope sick, they um, needed to get his money to buy more street Oxycontin. Mm. Meanwhile, Beth, uh, we mentioned this drug came onto the market, I think, in 1996. How was Purdue Pharma benefiting when we look at the profits within over a 10-year period? Well, um, according to a New Yorker piece that ran in January of this year, they've made more than $30 billion. Um, the big thing they did was they changed the narrative around uh, opioids, which for a century we knew were not safe except for at end of life and very severe pain. They made it okay for doctors to be comfortable to prescribe them for moderate pain, so low back pain, osteoarthritis, uh, things that before we'd never, we would have just used um, Tylenol or aspirin for or non-opioid medications. They preached that narrative really hard with the sales reps. And of course, now you see the CDC guidelines in 2016 going back to we only give opioids in severe pain. And um, we're, we're going back to that thinking that we had for a century. But they, what they really did was, was flip the narrative. Hmm. We've been talking about Purdue Pharma, the company, but it was the Sacklers uh, who founded that company, again, based in Stanford, Connecticut. What can you tell us about them, Beth? Well, it was a small company. Um, began in the 50s and um, was before uh, the painkillers uh, was best known for 
betadine, earwax remover, laxatives. And it was headed up by three brothers um, who were research uh, psychiatrists and uh, Arthur Sackler in particular, no longer living um, and uh, was not part of the OxyContin development team, but he was really sort of the pioneer of medical marketing and had a newspaper, um, sort of pioneered this idea of um, paying doctors to become paid spokesmen for uh, drugs. And, um, you know, he was known for the ad campaign for Valium, becoming Mother's Little Helper, and that kind of thing. And so when you see his um, his relatives sort of using some of the, these same techniques with OxyContin, these are ideas that were, were pioneered by, by Arthur Sackler originally. In your book, uh, you write Purdue had earned over $2.8 billion from OxyContin by 2007, including $595 million in earnings in 2006 alone. Uh, with me today from the studios of WVTF in Roanoke is Beth Macy. She's a journalist and author of the most recent book, Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America. We're going to continue our conversation with her after the break, and we want to hear from you. How should opioid addiction be treated in communities? What has been your experience or your family's experience? This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Join us at 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How much has the opioid crisis cost communities nationwide from lost productivity, hospitalizations, and incarceration, among other consequences? On 100, Americans are dying from overdoses every day. As our guest today, Beth Macy, writes in her book, Dope Sick, epidemiologists predict the toll could spike to 250 a day as synthetic opioids like fentanyl become more pervasive. What's the answer to solving this crisis? What has been your family's experience with opioid abuse? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Beth Macy is joining us from Roanoke, Virginia today. Uh, your book uh, chronicles uh, the stories of many people who are fighting back, but one of the people uh, that you start the book with is uh, someone who was put into prison for dealing, and that's Ronnie Jones. Tell us about him, Beth, and why you chose to go to prison to interview him. Sure. Um, well, when I was circling back to first start doing my research for my book proposal, I went back to the prosecutors that I had interviewed for that initial story that I wrote in 2012 and um, asked if they could just talk about what they were seeing now. And of course, they were seeing the same thing, but more of it, and in places where they'd never seen it happening before, like this rural um farm town, not a distressed area in the northern Shenandoah Valley. And and one of the prosecutors said we just put 84 people away on, on federal and state charges. And the ringleader at the top was this fellow named Ronnie Jones. He had been sent to this this small town to work in a chicken plant to serve out the last part of his prison sentence for an earlier charge. He had previously been a crack and marijuana dealer. Um, And so when he got out and he decided to stay in the region, no one would hire him. He starts going back to selling marijuana and somebody says, well, remember in the break room of the chicken plant, everybody was doing opioid pills. If you really want to make money, 
because the pills are getting more expensive and harder to get, you need to bring heroin. So as the prosecutors and the police told the story, almost overnight, this kind of idyllic little farm town goes from having goes from having a handful of known heroin users to almost hundreds as the people make the switch from pills to heroin. And I'm at the beginning I'm I'm going to interview him in prison at the request of a young man, 19 years old. He was a high school football star who had initially been addicted to painkillers um, from a snowboarding accident. And he ends up dead on somebody else's bathroom floor and his mother just can't understand. I meet her at his gravesite overlooking the football field where Jesse had once made the crowd roar. And his mother says to me, I thought it was just pills. Can you help me understand why it is I lost my beautiful, burly 19-year-old son who never missed a day of work? I thought it was just pills. That's interesting, that disconnect uh, that we're hearing uh, the mother when she says it was she thought it was just pills. People still weren't really aware of the, the consequences um, of prescription drug abuse and how that can lead to heroin abuse as well. Yeah. And one of the things I noticed, I first heard it from uh, Jesse's mom, Christy, but then I started noticing in all the the stories I was collecting, not all, but a significant portion, probably three quarters, the kids had initially, uh, the kids who were overdosing like in their at 19 and 20, had started off taking ADHD medication. And the science on this isn't clear. Another message of the book, the science is never quite all the way clear. It's called practicing medicine, right? But um, you see kids that start out with Ritalin and Adderall at a young age, and we know there's a lot of overdiagnosing of that condition. Um, when they become high schoolers, start trading the pills for harder things. And in Jesse's case, he did initially get hooked to um, an oxycodone-based product and um, then started trading his ADHD medication uh, in order not to be dope sick. And, you know, we've just seen a huge increase in our country with this idea that there's a pill for every ill. I mean, to the point that two-thirds of our college seniors now have been offered prescription stimulants for non-medical use. I just think that's crazy. This is where we live. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Dan is calling from Hartford. Dan, go ahead with your question or comment. Hey, yeah. um, First, I want to thank you guys for actually talking about this topic because it, it kind of touches home a lot. Uh, I've been a cancer patient and uh, since uh, for 2010, and uh, I was prescribed painkillers like you would not believe. Uh, they started off with uh, 245 milligram oxys, and then uh, eventually, after two years of on that, I was able to up myself to 15s, then up to 30s, so I was getting 180 30s a day, or a month, and 245s a month, along with 25 milligram fentanyl patches, 25 of those a month. And I've been clean over a year. Um, It was just that the doctors don't care who's really on it. They just prescribe whatever they want uh, and however much they want. And I was able to get whatever I wanted. Um, And all I had to do is say my my back's bothering me, my legs bother me because that's where my, my cancer was located. Um, and now that I'm off of it, I could see people that I know that are on it and 
what's been going on is they prescribe so much that people are not getting that high anymore. And I see it with friends that I don't talk to anymore, but they, uh, it's led to, to heroin use, and I've known enough mm-hmm. people who've died off of it. And uh, it's, it's, it's sad what is going on in society where people are able to get just so much medication and narcotics that they don't even need them. And I think personally, doctors should be counting on a regular basis the prescriptions that they're giving out to people um, and, and doing pill counts on a regular basis to control how much people are taking um, and even doing drug tests because some of those people that are getting the prescriptions are just selling them and buying heroin like like like. Uh, Unfortunately, some some people um, that you've talked about. Well, Dan, thank and you. We want, I want to have uh, Beth Macy just respond to, to what you were talking about. But thank you for your call. Uh, I'm interested in hearing uh, your take, Beth, because in your book you talk about some of the ways communities, states have responded. I know even here in Connecticut, there's now prescription drug monitoring program. But from what Dan is saying, you know, is it effective? Well, I think doctors are being a lot more cautious about that. In in fact, I'm hearing from a lot of uh, people who used to be in Dan's situation who are, you know, people who are having the opposite problem. Actually, they can't get their painkillers. One of my colleagues at the newspaper, in fact, was she's on some painkillers as a way to avoid a surgery and you know, she gardens and she beekeeps and she's a very active person. And she says, without these drugs, I couldn't do my job. I'd have to have this life-threatening surgery. And so we just need more nuance. But but definitely, um, you know, we do need a big correction. And I think you're starting to see that with the CDC guidelines in 16 that says only use the opioids if everything else has been tried first and only use them in the most severe cases. But I also think um, if we just leave these patients in severe pain, cancer patients, et cetera, just out to dry, they are going to go because of that fear of dope sickness. They're going to go. And you're seeing um, some of the data from public health journals saying they do go to heroin and they are at risk of overdose deaths. So we just need a really thoughtful, nuanced approach to this. Mm. Over the years, uh, many lawsuits have been brought up against uh, brought against Purdue Pharma. Um, tell us about what happened in 2007 and what was the result when uh, uh, I believe it's a, a U.S. attorney in uh, Virginia that went after Purdue. Yeah, based in uh, Roanoke, here where I live, uh, John Brownlee was a U.S. attorney at the time, started investigating the company and uh, over a five-year period um, and ended up <clears throat> filing uh, criminal misbranding charges. There was a plea agreement in Abingdon, Virginia, which is not far from where Dr. Van Z practiced in the coal fields. And um, Purdue, the company, uh, actually the holding company, Purdue Frederick, pleaded guilty to criminal misbranding, felony charge, and the three top executives uh, pleaded guilty to misdemeanor versions. No one went to jail, though. And because it was the holding company, um, not Purdue Pharma, um, Purdue Pharma was able still to do business with TRICARE, Medicaid, Medicare. Um, nothing really happened. Sales continued to increase. And none of that money, okay, so they paid a $634.5 million fine. None of that money went to treatment. So you hear not a lo- now a lot about this um, multi-jurisdictional uh, litigation uh, being overseen by a 
federal judge in Cleveland. And many activists and advocates are really hoping that um, the money for treatment will be, um, you know, will be there in the settlement that comes out of that. And that's against Purdue, not just Purdue, but many opioid makers and distributors. We're going to get into treatment options in just a little bit. I'm talking with Beth Macy, the author of Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America. You mentioned the multi-jurisdictional lawsuits that are coming down the line. The city of Danbury is one of uh, several Connecticut municipalities suing. Uh, Mayor Mark Boughton joins us now by phone. Mayor Boughton, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me on, Lucy. So tell us about um, Danbury's uh, decision to, to sue, and, and who are you suing, and what would you want the outcome to be? Where would the, the money go? Yeah, we're, su- we're suing the uh, makers of um, the particular uh, drugs in question, the opioids in, in question, and really um, we're looking for assistance, uh, financial assistance, with both uh, the outcome of somebody who's addicted in terms of the cost of the community, um, as well as some uh, uh, proactive approaches in terms of treatment uh, and supporting some of our, our groups out there. I, I've been listening to the show. I think everything has pretty much been covered in terms of what the problem is. But also as somebody who was a patient uh, with, with brain surgery, uh, who had a tumor out of his head, um, there also is an, it's a very nuanced issue because uh, it became very difficult to get any kind of pain reliever except for Tylenol. And um, I had a rough couple of months there. So um, I think there's a balance that has to be struck in there. And I think we need uh, Purdue and and every other manufacturer's assistance in finding that balance. Look, we need to go after the doctor that's prescribing a million pills a month. We know there's something wrong there and the folks that are out there that are selling this stuff. But um, uh, more importantly, too, we need to understand that there there is value to this medication if used appropriately and correctly uh, and not abused. And Mm -hmm. so somehow we've got to make them a partner in this. And the only way we can bring them to the table is through a lawsuit. Uh, Mayor Bouton, uh, thank you for that point, bringing that up about um, uh, what happened after your brain surgery and this uh, the struggle sometimes to get relief uh, with uh, a medication. Beth Macy, you mentioned that, I believe, in your book that you've heard from people, too, that say, look, um, sometimes now I'm being treated like I'm an addict, but I, ne- I do need this medicine for a legit condition. Right. Right, right. And I think doctors are getting, uh, you know, rightfully more cautious, but we don't want to overcorrect either because we don't want those people going into the black market and buying heroin to stave off their dope sickness and then getting, you know, getting fentanyl in it and overdosing and dying. And I mean, the important thing to remember is even though doctors are being better about not overprescribing, we still have 2.6 million people with opioid use disorder in this country. Some excerpt some experts believe it's as many as 4 million. And so the horse is out of the barn. That's, to me, really where um, I'm hoping Judge Polster uh, can make these companies come up with settlement monies that will go toward treatment in providing low threshold access to medication-assisted treatment, which study after study shows is the best way to prevent overdose death. Uh, we're going to get to that in just a couple of minutes, but I did want to ask Mayor Bouton while he's on the line. Again, you're participating in a suit uh, to try to get these opioid uh, drug makers uh, to, to uh, pay for uh, the consequences of, of this these prescription drugs that have led to uh, the opioid epidemic around the country. What has been the impact in your city? Well, first of all, I mean, as already mentioned, the, the deaths have been absolutely tragic. And it it absolutely always is that leap from the pills to heroin because heroin's more available 
Uh, it gives you a similar high, uh, and uh, you know the pills uh, on the street value. Uh, in addition, in a, you know, one oxycodone pill would could be anywhere between thirty and forty dollars per pill, whereas you can get you know five times that high off of heroin. So people are, are out there uh, in that marketplace trying to satiate their their addiction. Um, so because of that, we've seen between thirty and fifty deaths per year. Uh, people from uh, overdoses, and it's it's absolutely tragic. And oftentimes, as mentioned, it's laced uh, the materials laced with fentanyl, which is highly uh, uh, dangerous uh, for people. So we know that's a problem, uh, and there's a cost to that. We also know that we're picking up people in the street who are ODing, and we just recently saw a horrible case in um, different uh, substance, but still a horrible case in New Haven, where people are ODing, and there's a cost to the hospitals, there's a cost to the ambulances, there's a cost to our emergency management and public safety personnel. Um, it costs the city to manage this addiction problem, uh, and so we have uh, tallied uh, that cost on a yearly basis, and that uh, is well north of uh, several million dollars uh, to to our city, uh, and we we expect to be compensated for that. And then obviously we would want to use those monies for proactive treatment and uh, programming and um, education uh, for people that are out there uh, in terms of, of understanding this can be a real danger to you. Mayor Mark Bowton from the city of Danbury, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is where we live. Uh, today we're uh, looking into the opioid epidemic in our country through the lens of this new book, Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America. Beth Macy's a journalist and author of this book, among others. She's joining us from Roanoke, Virginia today. We've mentioned uh, medication-assisted treatment a couple of times, so let's get to that because some of the people that you profile in your book, uh, there are parents who have the means to pay for rehab in and out again for their children who have become addicted. But let's talk about what are the treatment options out there and what does science show what actually can help someone who's been addicted to opioids? Sure. You mentioned the parents paying thousands of dollars to send their kids to out-of-state rehabs. Most of the rehabs in this country don't allow medication-assisted treatment because they're abstinence only. Um, So less than half. And only 2% allow all three kinds of medication-assisted treatment, which are methadone, buprenorphine, and um, naloxone. And, I'm sorry, naltrexone, and, or Vivitrol is the brand name. And what I saw over and over as I was following some of these families for the last two and a half years is just sort of Herculean efforts to get the money to send their addicted 20-something-year-old to an, uh, to a, a recovery center across the country. They would bomb out of that. Uh, they would check themselves out, and they were living on the streets and mixing with criminal gangs and prostitution, many of them prostituting to get those drugs. And um, I, after all of my research, I have come to believe that it is just so much safer to keep people in their home communities, but to make access to this MAT or medication-assisted treatment, buprenorphine and, um, and methadone are the, the 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 best ways, according to every scientific survey, uh, to make them access accessible to people, many of whom are living on the streets, in a really low threshold way. So to me, that comes down to what my um, one of my main sources, young Tess Henry, told me the first time I interviewed her. She had been addicted by two 30-day prescriptions to opioids for a simple case of bronchitis at an urgent care center. And the first time I interviewed her in late 2015, she said, what we need are 
are urgent care centers for the addicted. And to me, that's a syringe exchange and recovery program because we have skyrocketing hepatitis C rates, potential skyrocketing HIV rates because of people sharing dirty needles. We have law enforcement officers getting stuck by them and having to be tested for a year to make sure they don't get hepatitis C. It's a danger to have these dirty needles out there. And what a syringe exchange can do is not only provide clean needles until somebody's ready to get go to treatment, but it's also a really low threshold, easy access way to then refer people to treatment in their communities. We hosted a, a panel discussion in New Haven at Gateway Community College a couple of months ago, Beth, where we had an epidemiologist and a former opioid abuser on this panel. Uh, the uh, former abuser now works in recovery. And there was quite a tension between both of them about approaches to treatment, meds versus beds. Where does that tension come from? Because the former opioid abuser says that abstinence was his way, and he did, they don't want to be encouraging people to be on medication the rest of their lives to uh, tra- trade one drug for another. Yes, I heard that over and over. And I saw that play out um, with, with Tess, for instance, who I was just speaking about. But it, it comes from, you know, an AA and NA believe in abstinence only. And many of these treatment centers um, were designed around that 12-step philosophy. And I'm so glad for people for whom abstinence only treatment works. I'm so happy for them. But the numbers are really clear, 10 to 11 percent for can get better from opioid addiction using abstinence only 12 step versus uh, medication assisted treatment plus therapy and counseling and social supports numbers can be as high as 50 to 60% in preventing overdose death so I, I think it's pretty clear and and I have seen so many people struggle so many people be stigmatized sitting in NA meetings with young Tess Henry um, multiple times and they would allow her to be there but when she would ask for somebody to sponsor her they would say, no, if you're on Suboxone, no way, sorry. Um, you, you know, you're not, quote, clean. And that was like daggers to her. And that, you know, just sort of led her back to the streets. And um, so it can go both ways. The important thing to remember is not every addiction treatment works for every person who's addicted. So it's important to offer them all, really important. Uh, speaking of buprenorphine, if I'm saying that right, it's sold under the brand name Suboxone. There was news mm-hmm. recently, Beth Mace, we wanted to bring it up during the show, that Purdue Pharma, the same company that uh, created OxyContin, and uh, throughout your book uh, you uh, talk about uh, their role, and it's still, a, it's still being debated on how much uh, they play in this opioid epidemic, but they now have received a new drug, and I'm going to quote from the Financial Times, the invention is a novel form of buprenorphine, a mild opiate that can controls drug cravings, which is often given as a substitute to people hooked on heroin or opioid painkillers such as OxyContin. So this is a drug intended to wean those who are addicted to opioids. But this is a company, again, that is now going to be able to make money off of a a version of buprenorphine? That's right. Um, so Richard Sackler, um, who was the CEO of Purdue, got was one of the inventors of a patent for this new form of opioid use disorder treatment. And uh, the critics say he's now going to be able to benefit even more from a crisis that his family's company is accused of fueling. Um, somebody on Twitter the other day said that was like a glass repair company taping their business card to a brick and chucking it through your window. Um, making money again, again, but 
this new formulation of buprenorphine is supposed to be a wafer that dissolves faster. Law enforcement will likely uh, maybe be perhaps more favorable to it because it, there, there could be less of a risk of diversion and abuse. So again, nuanced um, uh, discernment of this drug is needed. And um, the fact that uh, just the fact itself that we're trying to get a better form of buprenorphine is not um, is not bad per se. It's it's good, but um, I would also like to see it in conjunction with this company, which profited so much off of this epidemic, to to pay back some of those profits they've gained. Beth Macy is a journalist joining us from Roanoke, Virginia today from the studios of WVTF. Her new book is Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America. We're going to continue our discussion right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and we want to hear from you, too. Join us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, my guest is Beth Macy, author of the new book, Dope Sick. And before we uh, talk a little bit more about uh, some of the stories that she uncovered in, in her new book, I want to take a call. Hassan is calling from Norwich. Hassan, go ahead. Hi, my name is Dr. Mohammed Hassan Majid. I'm a child psychiatrist and addiction psychiatrist with uh, deep interest in opioid addiction and pain management. So thank you for taking my call. And uh, I really appreciate a very important topic. So I will make two comments here. One, I was listening earlier, and Beth Macy mentioned about the over-treatment of ADHD, and it is uh, linked, somehow I heard this way, that it is linked with opioid addiction. I think it differently. While I completely agree that, uh, you know, some children, even in my practice, I get to know sometimes they're trading off their stimulant medications for other things. Could it be uh, opioids, marijuana, and uh, other drugs? But I think that science is pretty much clear. Untreated ADHD leads to more risk-taking behavior, and one of them is experimenting with other drugs. And unfortunately, in current time, this is opioid. So that was one comment. And the second thing is, as my interest is in pain management, and I write extensively about it, that something is missing from pain management, which is one psychiatrist are not taking interest in pain management. And I will divide it into two, two, two things other than opioids, all other medic, not all other, other than answers and acid acetaminophen, which are common over-the-counter medications most of the time. But other medications are antidepressants, mood stabilizer, anticonvulsants, which we psychiatrists use every day to treat different disorders, depression, anxiety. And these disorders are extremely comorbid with psych pain as well, like depression, anxiety, personality disorder, substance use disorder, unfortunately. So I believe if psychiatrists get involved more in treatment of chronic pain disorder, we can provide better care in many ways. 
Hassan, thank you for those two comments. I wanted to get Beth Macy to respond uh, first to uh, um, the the families where you um, where the, they told you that with uh, ADHD, their children having uh, uh, the Ritalin, the Adderall, that that might have impacted uh, their child's uh, addiction later on, and then this uh, this new uh, focus on pain management. Yeah, and I say in the book that the science is unclear. I, I hear his point. Uh, about untreated ADHD leading to risk-taking behavior, but um, there's also a lot of data that it is uh, overdiagnosed, and um, you know a lot of parents want their children to have the you know the the best shot at um, doing well in their school studies, and um, we we've, we we hear that over and over again. In terms of the pain, and I do say in the book, I quote studies that conflict that are both pretty current. Uh, So I I believe the science is still a bit unclear on that and more research needs to be done. In terms of uh, the pain management and this idea of um, psychiatrists um, dealing, uh, child psychiatrists in particular, dealing with uh, uh, pain management medication, in particular buprenorphine, I think it's really clear that we need more doctors to become wavered to prescribe buprenorphine, not for just children, but uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, for for everyone. In France, where they took the waiver requirement away, they expanded the uh, the capacity for prescribing buprenorphine times 10, and their overdose deaths went down 87%. Um, so many doctors still don't want to do this. It's perhaps a bit cumbersome. The DEA has to sign off. Um, I, I know part of it is still the stigma. They don't want, quote, addicts in their waiting room. But look, they have, quote, addicts in their waiting room. And um, doctors helped us get into this epidemic. I think um, they should feel morally compelled to help get us out. We got a tweet from a listener, Christina, who writes, since graduating from Southington High School in 2009, I've lost four classmates to opioid addiction. Mm -hmm. Each person started using their prescription medication. We just have a a couple of minutes left, uh, Beth Macy. Uh, But when when you read your book, Dope Sick, you know, with this epidemic, we naturally want to find someone to blame uh, for where we are today. And, and you walk us through meeting uh, dealer Ronnie Jones, uh, talking with, about the pharmaceutical company uh, that uh, produced uh, this very uh, strong and addictive painkiller. Uh, but when you're talking with the families affected, you know, who do they blame? Hmm. Um, it's it's kind of all over the map. Some blame the person who sold their child the drugs that they overdosed on, not really understanding that that person was addicted to, and more than likely just selling those drugs to, uh, you know, supply his own heroin. Um, Many people blame the pharmaceutical companies for, you know, the criminal misbranding that went on. Uh, Many people blame the doctors who took a lot of, 5,000 of whom, Doctors, nurses, and pharmacists became paid spokesmen for the drug. Um, There's a lot of blame to go around. But what we really need now with um, at least 2.6 million people addicted uh, to opioids, we need leadership to get us out of it. Uh, speaking of leadership, we look often to Washington uh, to help uh, with funding, to support treatment options. Uh, mixed messages coming from the Trump administration on this one, Beth? Yeah, yeah. A few months ago, he was talking about executing drug dealers. And I think back to people like Tess and to Jesse that that I write about and um, Brian. I mean, I these are 
tree trimmers and high school football stars and cheerleaders that are largely dealing to support their own habits. And I, I again, I think more nuance is needed. I mean, he said he was going to declare a national emergency, and he's declared uh, a public health emergency, which sounds like a national emergency, but it 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 um, gives no new authority or money for treatment. And that's what we really need. Experts um, believe we need $60 billion over the next 10 years to appropriately get opioid use disorder treatment enmeshed with our health care system. That's a lot of money. And we're seeing dribs and drabs being debated in Congress. We need real leadership at both at federal, state, and local levels. Uh, Beth Macy, again, is a journalist and author of the book Dope Sick. Uh, before we let you go, I understand that you wear a locket with a picture of one of uh, the individuals you profiled in your book. Tell us a little bit about Tess and why you wear her picture. Yeah, it's a locket, and it's got a poem by E.E. E. Cummings engraved on the outside of it. Her mother gave it to me. She has a matching one. And uh, the poem was called I Carry Your Heart in My Heart, and it represents the way Tess felt about her son. She had lost custody of him when he was just a toddler. I didn't see him for um, many months up until she was she was murdered on Christmas Eve in Las Vegas after checking herself out of an abstinence-only rehab. She so wanted to get better to so she could uh, parent her child again. And um, inside the locket, I keep a picture of her with her rescue dog, Coda, who she loved. And I keep a picture on the other side of the locket of James Baldwin, who said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed um, until it's faced. And I hope the message of this book is that until we stand, understand how we got here and where the gaps are in treatment, we're still going to be a, a country where it's so much easier to get addicted than it is to get help for addiction. The book is called Dope Sick Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America. Uh, Beth Macy, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much. You too, Lucy. Thank you. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can always download our podcast. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>